welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host Titus and today I'm joined by my friend Telly Davidson, LA critic, for a discussion of Citizen Kane. Since this is the second anniversary of the podcast, we've been thinking about doing something with a bit more prestige and of course, Citizen Kane used to be way up there. Film critics who are uniquely incapable of judging used to think this the best movie ever made. It's still very well regarded, but as Telly will argue, it's more importantly relevant since it speaks so much to American politics and American media. In the age of Trump, it's time to look at Citizen Kane all over again and see past the glamour and get to the more serious issues of our love affair with populism, with highly erotic, highly confident men who promise some kind of new revelation of populism. And of course, with the elites they attempt to replace whom we kind of hate. Telly, first of all, please introduce yourself for our audience, then we'll get to the movie proper. Hi, well, it's a uh, pleasure to be here, as always, and I've really been looking forward to this. I'm a uh, film and television critic. I also work with a uh, producer services agency, uh, Porter Pictures, at my sort of day job. But I've reviewed films and television shows for Entertainment Today, If Monthly Magazine, which was Anthony Ferrante's magazine before he hit it big with Sharknado, Film Stew, Yahoo Movies, 213, All About Jazz. And I was the culture critic for the From Forum for their weekend column for David Frum's website back in 2009, 10, and 11. Uh, A lot of them were casualties of the recession. Recently, I've been published in everything from National Review and American Conservative on the right to uh, Attention.com and some other sources on the left. And I might have something possible in LA Review of Books coming out later this year. I published two books. One was, well, about 10 years ago called TV's Grooviest Variety Shows, which was just a fun look back pattern after Fred Westbrook's book, The Encyclopedia of TV Game Shows, on shows like Flip Wilson and Laugh-In and Carol Burnett and Ed Sullivan and Lawrence Welk and Dean Martin and all. More recently, I did a bit more of a serious book, although there was a strong humorous aspect in it called Culture War, which was a look back on the 1990s decade. And that was an interesting book, although I'm, I guess I'm a little bit prejudiced being the author. I, I wrote it and developed it in Obama's second term. It was published in 2016, back when all of the polls had Hillary Clinton winning and everyone knew she was going to be the nominee. And we thought that there was going to be a lot of, I won't say nostalgia for the 90s, but sort of a critical reassessment of that decade. And uh, there certainly has been, but in a very different way than I or my agent at the time even expected. But it's high time, I thought, for a look back at the 90s, because for many years, the rub about the 90s was what didn't you like about it, the peace and the prosperity, that it was the holiday from history. It was just this, you know, hiatus in between the Cold War and 9-11. And that's true. But the 90s, and you and I were talking about this, were the low-down, dirty sequel to the 1970s. The 70s was the hiatus after Vietnam and Watergate and before Reaganism. So as far as large international events, nothing much happened. But in terms of domestic policy, even to this day, the things that that drive the so-called culture war, 
racial issues, feminism, abortion, gay rights, which all really came into the public consciousness under Ford and Carter. And even when we were doing our holiday from world history in the 90s, the things that affect our political life today, 24-hour cable, the internet, tabloid slash reality, you know, Jerry Springer, big brother type journalism and television, and the sexualization of politics, Monica, Bush versus Gore, and the polarization of the other side is not just my adversary, but my enemy. That certainly started with Gingrich and Cheney on the right, and it accelerated on the left with the reaction to Bush to the religious right and to the conservative movement by the left at the time. And that hadn't really been paid attention to up until the last few years, and I was happy to be a part of it. There are a couple of other very good books on the 90s. Steve Kornacki was one that I reviewed for National Review. The only problem with his book was that for someone who was in the media himself and who is my age, he was woefully kind of officer friendly on his viewpoint of the media. The media really went haywire at that time, regardless of what your politics were, which was sort of what my book tried to uh, illuminate as best it can. And that's one of the reasons I was especially psyched to talk to you about Citizen Kane, because Citizen Kane, in addition to all of its technical accomplishments, was the first meta-media movie. It was the first, or one of the very first, certainly American-made movies, about the effects of the movies and radio and communications technology at that time, before television, but it certainly previsioned that as well, and about the explosion of the newspaper industry. Yeah, we'll have to get to another podcast where we'll talk about your book, about culture wars, about the 90s. As you put it, the seedbed of the whirlwind we are now reaping. Yeah. All of the crazy stuff that's in high gear now was starting then and we were oblivious to it because it felt right to be oblivious to it. It felt justified or as we would say now, it was entitlement and privilege on our part. Well, however that may be, it's useful to compare the two ages because we're now going through the death throes of TV culture, of the tune-in, maybe everybody should tune in up until all broadcasting turns narrow and everybody tuning in tunes into very different things. It's the end of an idea that you can sell people advertising, you can sell people fantasies, and they will build a future out of that. In fact, they will be creating a future by their devotion to these dreams. And it's all coming down now since both newspapers and television have lost all the advertising money to Facebook and Google, who themselves are seeing the destruction of their model of money making and are moving somewhere else in the digital economy. But we still have the problem of celebrity, which is the center of Citizen Kane. And it would be useful to compare this death of the TV era with the dying throes of the radio era, which the movie is so interested in. Citizen Kane is a very polished movie that has a lot of prestige behind it. It was not a success at the time. Orson Welles liked to say it was because Citizen Kane, William Randolph Hearst, wanted to kill the movie, mostly because it made his mistress look bad, the famous actress Marion Davis. 
Now, there is some truth to this, it wasn't put in theaters quite as it might have, but on the other hand, the Oscars certainly rewarded it and therefore made its legend. Orson Welles was 26 when this was done, it was his debut in Hollywood, and it's hard to find directors who had a better debut. There's, I guess the same year, John Huston's The Maltese Falcon, that is a superior movie, but on the other hand, he was not a new guy in Hollywood, he was just new to directing. Orson Welles, however, put out this movie that landed him some eight or nine Academy Award nominations. He won one for Best Original Screenplay, but he was nominated for two more as actor and director. The movie was also nominated for Best Picture, then Music. The famous Bernard Herrmann got the nomination for cinematography. One of the greats in shooting, Greg Toland, who Orson Welles loved and loved to tell stories about as a very willing educator and a man who took an early interest in the genius of Orson Welles, who came from theater and radio but had no ideas and therefore he liked to say no preconceptions about what a movie should look like. He was a quick study and therefore also a quick innovator, and Greg Toland was the man who oversaw this education in cinema. And also Robert Weiss, who later became a director in his own right, but who edited this movie and Orson's sequel, The Magnificent Ambersons, he got nominated for editing. So all the big categories and some of the small categories as well this great talent behind the camera to compensate for the fact that in front of the camera really there's only Joseph Cotton and Orson Welles, both newcomers at the time. It's very unusual for a very famous movie for that reason. Usually expect to have stars in it and this one does not. But all this prestige, although it speaks to certain important things we'll try to get to as we discuss the movie, also has the massive drawback that it turns discussions of Citizen Kane into a discussion of movie making. We will try to go past that to what the movie is about, what the movie has to say. I said earlier that film critics are uniquely incompetent when it comes to judging movies, and that is because movies are not about movies. Movies are about America in America, and if you want to understand Citizen Kane, you should know certain things about history and about politics. You should make certain judgments about character and about principles of justice. These are the things that count, and along with them, judgments about technologies of political communication. To understand the movie requires to think seriously about radio and its effect on newspapers, the nationalization of America through technologies of communication and transportation, of course. None of these things are anywhere near the wheelhouse of drama or film criticism. It's like talking about Shakespeare without knowing English history or ancient Roman politics, but instead obsessing over things that happen in a theater. Yeah, I think that's a trap that a lot of writers, especially of that era, fell into. The film critics that followed later on getting caught up in the film's considerable technical achievements and so forth. 
when you look at the lost generation, the World War I generation writers, Faulkner, Hammett, and Fitzgerald, and Nathaniel West, and so forth, who came out to join and got studio contracts and wrote for the movies after having had Broadway successes or literary successes, they were always fascinated by the moguls. To them, the actors, and even less, the actresses were just, you know, movable props. They were sex objects. They were either hopelessly out of reach, looks-wise and physically, of some of the less physically attractive writers, or they didn't have the drama to their lives, or at least they weren't open about it, that these, you know, foul-mouthed first or second generation Jewish and other ethnic, you know, Greek and Irish and so forth studio personnel had. You would think that someone who goes out to Hollywood, who is a novelist or a playwright, would want to write about a star, would want to write about, you know, a Joan Crawford or a Mary Pickford or self-made glamorous person that the public would know. But they were fascinated by the people who had authority over them, who they regarded as much less educated and intellectual than they, but who could control them, the writers, with their little finger and were signing their checks. And I think that was the trap that a lot of film critics fell into. Not that they shouldn't have looked at Kane's massive aesthetic and visual and artistic accomplishments, but in letting the politics of it go over their heads because they were so involved in what they were visually relating to on the screen that they didn't see that all of the effects and the techniques that Wells and Mankiewicz and Toland and such were using was in the service of making a very astringent statement about media and society at that time. Yeah, it rehearses the first half of the 20th century and therefore America's rise to dominating the world, really. Yeah. That's a bigger thing than really anything else, if you want to consider it. And the only thing, of course, that compares to America is a man who might want to dominate America. And that's an American temptation. All free peoples have this temptation to produce somebody so great that the nation could focus its love on him and he might be deserving of it. That's what Orson Welles wanted to create, to portray in this story. A man on the scale of America, a man that would go up and down in history as America does and would therefore in certain ways be a good image of national passions and national temptations. On the other hand, that's a very hard man to get to know. Part of the wit of the intelligence of design behind Citizen Kane is Orson Welles' decision to tell the story through the perspectives of four different people who were all associated with Kane, who knew him intimately, and therefore give you what Americans always want out of the press, the inside scoop, maybe the expose. It's part of the curse of being American that we are all opinionated and nevertheless we always mistrust people whose opinions disagree with ours and therefore are always tempted to pay for a press that will explain to us how the people who disagree with us are in fact morally corrupt or politically or economically corrupt since they're interested in something. There are many blessings but there are curses too and this is one of them and so the press does what the press does which is to invade people's privacy which also shows something about who we are as a free people. We are insatiably curious, although we are also, of course, fickle, and we forget or change our subjects of interest. Oh, yes, and one of the fascinating aspects of it was 
you would think if someone wants to tell the story of America through a sort of a great man theory, that they would choose a Teddy Roosevelt or a Woodrow Wilson or a Lincoln or a Franklin Roosevelt or what have you. But the genius was in choosing a newspaper mogul who eventually branched out into movies and radio and so forth, because whether it was Hearst, whether it was Pulitzer, whether it was Henry Luce or of a younger generation, Howard Hughes or so forth, the rise of America as A-list regional power and then after World War One as a superpower really dovetailed with the rise of what we would call national newspaper media first and then in magazines and then radio and motion pictures. You didn't have a national paper of record a la the New York Times or the Washington Post or even the LA Times or the Chicago Tribune. They may have existed in their primordial forms, but they did not have a national footprint outside of their own little markets until really the World War One era. And Hearst and Pulitzer having, you know, bunches of newspapers that they controlled were among the first to become what we would now call modern media moguls. We tend to think of, and we should, of the press as the fourth estate and the First Amendment as one of the most powerful and important safeguards against a demagogic, controlled police state that we have freedom of information, which is true, or at its best it should be. But we also tend to think in America that the news, at least in the past, was always supposed to be objective. We're right now kind of questioning the limits of objectivity. If I interview a Nazi or a white supremacist without judging him, am I being objective or am I glamorizing that? If I interview a full-on communist or what have you, or someone who's avowedly anti-Christian or anti-Semitic, am I being objective or am I giving someone a platform who shouldn't have one? Those topics are being brought into the consciousness today. But for many, many years, the conceit was the highest and best kind of journalism was objective journalism. And really, objective journalism started as kind of a marketing tool by the Salzburgers of the New York Times and the Chandlers of the L.A. Times and the Grahams and Myers of the Washington Post in reaction to the very unobjective journalism particularly of Hearst and also of Pulitzer and others. And when you look at the press in Great Britain and in other basically free societies, you have newspapers and magazines that are explicitly overtly to the right in much the same way that Fox News is here and explicitly overtly to the left in the same way things like NPR and MSNBC would be here. That's, I think, where journalism is evolving or devolving back to. But it's very interesting to compare that when Citizen Kane was made in 1941, that was sort of the very beginning with World War II of the 40s, 50s, early 60s great consensus era, where because we were in a fight literally for our lives against Nazi Germany first and then against the Soviet Union, acceptable discussion really closed. The 30s were really, I mean, you had openly fascist people like Father Coughlin, you had openly communists, the daily worker and so forth. You really had a lot of the same kind of disruptive elements on both sides that you have today. A lot of people, I think, thought in the mid to late 20th century that the 30s and what came before it 
and what we're living through now even is the aberration and that the natural state was objectivity, the vital center and that type of thing. And I'm thinking more and more that centrism and objectivity and voice from nowhere neutrality was really a thing of World War II and the Cold War. And that really the default point is having decidedly unobjective journalism on both sides fighting it out like cats and dogs. It's going to be something we're going to have to figure out as a society very soon. Yeah, we should just embrace it. It's the American way. It started with the founders who founded the nation together, pledged their lives, their fortunes and their sacred honor, risked their lives, that is. And as soon as they started governing the country, turned on each other in incredibly partisan ways, incredibly slanderously and underhandedly, and said terrible things. That is the American way, an openly partisan press, that is to say at least two different presses for the two different parties. And we are returning to that. The reason we can see and understand Citizen Kane today in a way that was very difficult 10 or 20 years ago is because we're beginning to accept that again. We're all opinionated and we organize our opinions in two parties and then go to town on each other in words. And there's not a great relationship between what we say and what we do. Political rhetoric in America is by nature crazy. Nevertheless, American politics is more moderate than anywhere else on the planet. Hence, the absence of world wars. Both things are true at the same time. And outside of the like late 60s civil rights, Vietnam, early 70s Watergate era, from the 40s through the early 80s or so, a person who lived in the era of Time and Newsweek and the New York Times and Walter Cronkite and John Chancellor and David Brinkley could look at a movie like Citizen Kane and think, thank God we have progressed so much since then. We have professional, objective news reporters who are dedicated to telling the truth. You know, we have Lou Grant, we have all the president's men, the, the Woodward and Bernstein, we have the reporter as hero. And they could look at a movie like Citizen Kane and feel rather smug and think, well, thank God the days of demagogic, power-mad media moguls who want to conspiratorially control the public are over. You can't think that anymore, looking at society the way it is today and at the way the multimedia sort of treats the American public like its own cat toy, in a sense. Yes, very much so. But that power to manipulate the nation, which was inaugurated by radio, is dying with the death of television. As you put it, the mid-century was an aberration. Not that it was all bad, by no means, but it was not the way America works. The technology nationalized first, politics nationalized second, but the technologies of political communication were only nationalized after World War II, with the arrival of the liberal consensus, the administrative state, the political agreement that the New Deal is unquestionable, that led to the political situation where Democrats won the Congress almost continuously from the 30s to the early 90s, and the rotation between parties in the presidency never threatened the rise of the administrative state. Republican presidents were just as responsible for nominating progressives to the Supreme Court or for creating new progressive agencies as Democrat presidents were. If you look at the accomplishments of Nixon and Eisenhower, in some ways they're way more progressive than many Democrat presidents were. 
That's what the consensus looked like in politics. And at the same time, hand in hand with progress in the administrative state, you had progress in the media, which centered in Washington for the first time in American history and spoke to the nation from a position of authority that really meant they were insiders. They had access to power. Even things like civil rights and Watergate, these things came out the way the progressives wanted. I'm not saying that it was wrong. The progressives were certainly right about civil rights, but they didn't have to experience defeat, except in the one crazy case that was, of course, the Vietnam War, and which spelled, in certain ways, the end of progress, since they could no longer be trusted on foreign affairs, and they were wiped out from their own left. The liberals of JFK and LBJ were wiped out by the new left. Yes, and one of the things as far as the administrative state goes also, which they began, I believe, in the 1930s, but they really went into full throttle effect during and after World War II when it came to radio and later television was the Fairness Doctrine. And of course, in motion pictures, you had the Hayes or the, later on the Sherlock Code which was sort of a gentleman's agreement of the studio heads more than it was something that was actually in black letter law, but it's had the force of law when it came to major American-made movies. Those two things really, again, closed the window as far as what could be spoken about in uh, polite society, as it were, in terms of politics and in terms of television and movie ideas. Also, because the movies were a mass medium at the time, and television was certainly became the ultimate mass medium back when there were only three or four networks, the goal was in those days to get the widest possible audience, which meant that you needed to have the widest demographic appeal. You didn't want to offend anyone in particular. And one of the most disgusting things about conspiracy theories about the media, and it's to Wells's credit, and I'm sure Herman Mankiewicz, that they didn't indulge the anti-Semitic trope if Cain had been Jewish, for example, the idea of the Jew controlling the media and that type of thing. But the predominantly Jewish heads of the television networks and radio, Paley, Sarnoff, Goldenson, and Mayer, and Warner, and Cohn, because they had experienced disgusting anti-Semitism early on in their lives, and because they were immigrants, and most of the non-Jewish ones too, like Zanuck and so forth were as well, and Elia Kazan, they came out of the immigrant experience. They were outsiders looking in in their own country. And so they, because they were white people, they had a privilege that no dark-skinned Hispanic or Indian and certainly no African-American person could have at the time in terms of being able to be close to power. But because of that, they were in the world but not of it, of WASP society. They were very much cognizant of don't rock the boat. Don't draw attention to yourselves. Don't make waves. Don't upset your good thing. And that reflected in don't make movies or television shows that could potentially offend too many people by making them too far to the right or too far to the left. That held really until certainly the new Hollywood era in the late 60s in film and until really the 80s and 90s in television. Very much the first rule was don't drive your potential audience, potential customers away. You're right. There was a lot of consensus and the desire for consensus in the nation itself 
which producers, of course, invariably respond since they owe democracy everything for their success and they are afraid of the fickleness. To some extent, the arrival of the mid-century consensus was good for business. People wanted consensus and producers wanted consensus as well since it was easier to sell stuff and it reduced some of the fickleness invariably present in freedom. In that strange sense, the technologies that nationalized America, the cars and planes and the radio and TV, made us more the same. So also the economics of world power and new industries made us all more like each other than we had been before. So also in culture, the arrival of this consensus, which meant that you could be liberal but at the same time be popular. All the right-thinking people were for civil rights, not necessarily in a revolutionary sense, of course, but in a broad sense. And at the same time, they were for mass audiences. Nobody had to think of this as an either-or. You could be both popular and have the moral prestige of liberal principles, whether it was the social transformations of the New Deal or any moral legislation or moral causes taking up the fight against anti-Semitism. The movies were already doing this in the 40s. A gentleman's Agreement, for example. Yes. This made for national consensus, but it also blinded people to the sources of that consensus. Now that the consensus has collapsed, it's much easier to see the strange character of men like Citizen Kane and what the passions behind such men are and what it is that the nation responds to. So the movie starts with Xanadu, which is the most alien thing you could imagine in America. It's named for a romantic poem for Coleridge's Xanadu, and starts with the introduction of his poem in Xanadu did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree. This is very quickly revealed to be a work of utter corruption. This man, Cain imported to America all the strange, exotic things he could find from Europe and Asia to make himself a pleasure dome. All this vast opulence, beyond counting, beyond accounting, is a show of a tyrannic soul. Finally, Cain found somewhere something that he could totally dominate and people with his fantasies. And this shows part of the danger with being American. America has no past, and therefore prestigious Americans are always threatening to import one, as Kane does. He wants to be more than merely American, and therefore he wants all the prestige and opulence of despotism or tyranny from the old world, from the ancien regime, from the age of inequality. In his old age, slipping the boundaries of American egalitarianism, he can indulge his weirdest passions. And one expects that that is true of very many rich Americans, far more than would immediately be obvious, because it's a national problem. After all, Kane became famous not because he was rich, but because he was popular. The people themselves love weirdos. We love celebrities, as we used to say. This is again something we can see now clearly, because we're living through Me Too and cancel culture, where all the old celebrities, including dead ones, are being exhumed to be put on trial. They are all being revealed to be monsters, including figures once of progress and popularity like Michael Jackson. Or of consensus and popularity like Bill Cosby. They are all revealed to be monsters and not even our shame about race can stop this cancel culture. 
the notion of celebrities is over. This was a creation of radio and television. All the nation looking up to this one thing, fantasizing this one fantasy, giving control to this one figure. But it's over now. And the movie starts with the collapse of Cain precisely to say that the spell in a way has been broken. But it's also a time to reflect on what the hell happened. And so we do what we do in America. We go to the press. The introduction of the movie is mostly gentlemen of the press and the work of the press. Press reels explaining the splendid greatness of Kane and mostly refraining from criticizing him, although he is shown sitting next to Hitler. He was a man at the center of great events, but he had poor judgment about them. He involved himself with despicable or indeed tyrannic people. He wanted greatness, and it often means tyranny. Yes, I think you hit on the sort of meta point of it, that greatness not in the moral sense, but greatness in the great man sense and tyranny often go hand in hand. People will always remember the Stalins, the Hitlers, the Saddam Husseins, the Osamas, not because they were morally great, they were the antithesis of morally great, but because they made such a great impact on things. And I think that when we started to see the first glimmers of Cain's childhood with his father and mother, with their gold claims coming in and with the bank guardian coming to take Cain away to the prep school, to the boarding school, away from mom and dad, from the security of his homestead, I think that was the metaphor for America. Even our established American families like the Kennedys and the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and so forth only went back so far compared to what, you know, Aunt Violet from Downton Abbey or Miss Marple would have called our old families in Great Britain or France or Russia that went back centuries and centuries of wealth. Even the Rothschilds would be a bit novu riche compared to some of the old European gentry and aristocracy. So it was a metaphor for the American ruling class that seems to Americans to have always been there, but really only goes back uh, a little ways. And also that the great trauma in his life, why he goes back to Rosebud the Sled to his childhood, is that he was ripped away from his normal childhood and thrown into the upper class for the first time where he had to sort of learn the rules of being ruling class. And that also enabled him to not have any shame about playing with newspapers and radio and motion pictures, which were considered by a lot of the old families rather beneath our notice. I remember just to go off on a little tangent, Gore Vidal said something. I don't want him to give me a lightning bolt from, you know, atheist heaven for misquoting him because he was very particular about being quoted. But to paraphrase, it was something to the effect of, American politics was ruined by John F. Kennedy, Nelson Rockefeller, and George Bush Sr. because they were born to the American ruling class. But instead of being the Amanoff's Grease, instead of being the senator, the congressman, the governor, one step away, they wanted to play for the whole cookie. They came up with movies and JFK and Bush with television, and they wanted to be stars in their own right, as well as ruling class society page stars in their own world. They wanted to be household names. And Charles Foster Kane, who came from their parents or grandparents' generation, fit that to a T and prefigured it. 
he came into wealth, but because he had a showman's flair, he wanted to buy his way in to the media to build a monument to himself and to sort of make sense out of his life, to make himself a star. With the decline of the media, as you were saying, you're seeing that happen all over again. You're seeing that with Jay Penske, Roger's son, buying up, you know, Mail.com and TV Line and Movie Line and Variety and Rolling Stone. You're seeing that with Megan Ellison, Larry Ellison's daughter, being the queen of independent film financing. You're seeing that with Dr. Patrick Soon Xiong buying the L.A. Times, Carlos Slim bailing out the New York Times, Jeff Bezos buying the Washington Post. The sort of Charles Foster Kane, or in a more recent context, Rupert Murdoch or Marty Peretz's business model of the rich sugar daddy, as it were, buying a media empire as a bauble for themselves to play with, and so that they would have instant total access to both Washington's, what they didn't have already and to shape America's opinion and culture and to have total access to stars and to glamour and to the you know hottest, sexiest actors and singers and whatnot in the world fawning over them. Cain epitomized that and prefigured that. You're right, the new money is getting into media all over again. One of the nobodies who became a Facebook millionaire or billionaire bought the New Republic. Right. Steve Jobs' widow bought The Atlantic, I guess. That's what she bought, right? Yeah, Lorene Jobs, uh uh-huh. And all of these legacy media things, they were bought primarily, yes, for their imprint on the public and also for their prestige. Exactly. And the sad part is that many of them wouldn't be here if it weren't for these rich benefactors. I mean, during the worst of the Great Recession, you had newspapers and magazines going belly up all over the place. You had the Los Angeles Times petitioning in Walmart to keep its circulation at an acceptable level. You had, you know, in like 2009, 10, 11, and 12, when Borders and Blockbuster Video were going bye-bye, and Variety and Hollywood reporter were being restructured. It was really media apocalypse. And a lot of these places would not be here today if it weren't for their donors. And it was only the A-list. It was only the Washington Post, the LA Times, the Atlantic, Newsweek, and so forth that had that goodwill and that prestige that were bailed out. The smaller second-tier papers and magazines went out the spit valve. Yeah. It's an entire industry dying, and that's what it's like now. It doesn't look like anybody can stop it. But it does point to the fact that Charles Foster Kane is incredibly wealthy, and he's cavalier about losing a million dollars when that was real money, as people say, every year for the sake of the paper. You need this part, and indeed in America, generation after generation, one oligarchy or another realizes that it needs the press in order to negotiate the political terms with democracy. They are the few, they are the rich, and they need to defend themselves in certain ways. They need to make sure that they're in the good graces of the people at some level, or else something crazy like in Europe might happen. America is ultimately democracy, that is to say, the American people are in charge. They may allow all sorts of oligarchs to rise and fall, but that does not mean they are not capable of becoming wrathful. 
hence the interest in having a media and hence the importance of a certain kind of education for a certain kind of class that wishes to be responsible, that wishes to have some kind of agreement with democracy that they should be in charge. It's useful to compare the liberal consensus that's now collapsing with the education of Charles Foster Kane. He is a rebel against this establishment that he was part of because of money, for no other reason being new money. But he had to learn certain disciplines that he failed to learn. You see this partly in his friend, Jedediah Leland, whom he met at Harvard, who was obviously of a different social vintage. He wants to become a drama critic as a kind of disgraced aristocrat who's all about culture might. He is the only man who is very close to Cain and very willing to criticize him and who loved him like a friend and therefore like an equal. Leland has certain moral restraints that Cain doesn't even though they share an aristocratic progressive politics. They are all for the people but Leland knows he is not of the people and therefore knows how to fear the people. Cain, however, thinks he owns the people, as Leland points out. Part of the genius of the story is to alternate somebodies and nobodies, aristocrats at the center of America, with regular people. The first narrator is, as you mentioned, his business manager, Thatcher. His mother wanted somebody to take care of the money and to make sure the kid would have everything that she didn't have and to make sure that his loser father, whom we nowadays would contemptuously call a redneck, doesn't have a chance to beat the child. Now, of course, if you look at how Charles Foster Kane turned out, however progressive you may be, you might still think maybe his father should have beaten him up now and then and told him <laughs> no. Nobody has ever said no to this guy and he never lets anybody say no, however many people he abuses along the way. So maybe some discipline would have been useful. But his mother hated the father because he was lazy, unsuccessful and a bully. The boy always loved his mother to the end, and you can see that in certain ways he is a mama's boy. Nobody ever said no to him, he was always coddled, up until he was violently taken away, because his mother had not just this love for him, but an iron will. She wanted him to be an aristocrat in America, send him to the best schools, and do all that stuff. That's how he entered into the world, which is an Anglo-American thing. Only Victorian Englishmen could be so cruel as to throw their children out of their house because the mothers didn't want to bother loving them. And so you have all this literature of abandonment, which had great people like Evelyn Waugh or Rudyard Kipling writing about what it means for your rich parents to leave you alone when you're a child and needy. But of course, also the kind of garbage that is super popular like Harry Potter boarding school experiences, the dangers and the craziness of being away from the only people who really love you and care about you, or at least should. And because Americans imitated English aristocracy, they did the same thing. Send the kids out to a school where nobody really gives a damn about them, and let boys fend for themselves. That made for very strong friendships, since it was shared suffering for life, and it made for public spiritedness in a way. You have to devote yourself to something respectable since you didn't have a private life that was so fulfilling given that your parents abandoned you. But of course, it also came with all sorts of misery and suffering. Charles Foster Kane in this strange environment makes an upper-class friend in Leland. They share progressive politics and a certain rebellion against the upper classes to which they belong. But it also means that they never learn the disciplines of being upper class and therefore of taking their public responsibilities seriously, which would mean admitting that the difference between rich and poor is never going to go away. 
It could be dealt with more justly or less justly, but it is a permanent feature of human nature. Progress is a rebellion against that, and people like Cain, who want to be loved by everybody, want to make everybody the same, lovers of themselves, as Leland points out to him. His business manager, Thatcher, embodies the respectable part of that in America, which is not an aristocracy of university or the administrative state as it would be nowadays. It's an aristocracy of business. It's good sound investments and it's good sound policy. It's not supposed to achieve great victories or to create a class of tech billionaires, for example. It's just supposed to preserve the way things are. And this guy was a good steward of the wealth of Cain all his life, but never understood anything about him, including the fact that the boy who liked him personally hated everything he stood for, because he wanted to destroy that entire oligarchic system. That's very true. Cain was what we would now call a disruptor. And again, that was the little boy in him. Just like when you have a little kid who builds up a little uh, mock-up city and then plays King Kong or Godzilla and knocks them down. He liked disrupting as long as his joint wasn't messed with. He liked disrupting and, and tweaking the establishment, even though he was a part of and in some ways a definitive part of the establishment. And certainly that's one of the many parallels to Trump's life is that Trump was someone who was certainly born with every possible material advantage. And his father hated him and overtly abused him and sent him away to a super strict military boarding school. And he engaged in open, you know, tabloid-like celebrity behavior because he had all the money he could ever want. But he wanted, he was one of the first, what we would now call, way before The Apprentice, reality stars in that he branded himself in the late 70s and 80s and 90s. I read a report, I think Trump was talking with Roger Ailes when, and said, how much would it cost to do a full A-list, pull out all the stops presidential campaign? And I think it was Ailes who said something like, oh, probably about 75, 80 million dollars. And Trump said, hell, I'd spend that much on a yacht. Running for president for a year is way more fun than a yacht. So the reason that Cain was able to lose hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars is he would say that he didn't lose that money, that it was worth every penny to him because it bought him the goodwill and the fame of the public. And I think that when you see the neediness of people, whether it was that or whether it was someone like Bernie Sanders, who is admirable in many respects, but when he goes out there, I mean, how many 75-year-old white-haired white men go out and have a bunch of 21-year-olds, you know, screaming and treating them like, you know, Justin Timberlake or Beyonce or, you know, Tom Cruise or George Clooney? I mean, there is certainly an eroticization, an adrenaline rush, a dopamine hit to that. And Cain wanted that. And he also realized that he was on the cutting edge of being able to achieve that without being a king or a president or an actual world leader. When Saturday Night Live got started back in 1975, 
Chevy Chase, who was their first big star, him and Belushi and Aykroyd and God bless her, Gilda Radner. And Chevy was the biggest star of all of them when, when the show first hit. And he was interviewed by uh, the New Yorker or Vanity Fair or some such thing. And he said, you know, it's really weird when you consider the fact that Abraham Lincoln was probably never seen by more than 10,000 people at one time. And Jesus Christ was probably never seen by more than a couple thousand people at one time. And I go on television and I'm seen by 20 million people at one time. And he said, no one's ever said that I don't have an ego, but you've got to admit that's way out of whack. People said that John Lennon was blasphemous when he said that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus even though John Lennon had some pretty weird attitudes towards religion, I don't think that he meant that to be offensive uh, so much as he meant that to sort of slap people across the face to say, isn't it weird, isn't it incredible that only in this century could a rock band, even one as wonderful and artistic and terrific as the Beatles were, could touch more people's lives at any one point on television or on the radio than, you know, the most important person who ever lived. I don't know that people before the late 1800s, early 1900s, even really thought about being famous the way that you and I think about being famous as something that is possible to us if we become an actor or a singer or a writer or whatever and hit it big. The lust for fame and the lust for what the psychiatrists would call self-actualization has always been there. But I think that Cain was the first metaphor for the lust for being famous in the modern sense of the word. Yeah, I think you're right about this. It's part of free politics that you end up with what we call demagogues, people who are desperately in love with the people and want the people to love them back, some of whom are decent people, most of whom are pretty screwed up. And there's a lot of that. I mean, it's not possible for you and me to become celebrities, but it is possible for other people, and they're mostly not fully sane. Democratic politics, for that reason, tends to create crazy people. If you want to get up in front of such a stage with such an audience, you probably are a bit out of whack. Electricity, however, did change things because it could create an electric image of you, of me, of somebody that could be transmitted instantaneously everywhere. And this changed the relationship between public and private life. Why is Citizen Kane not about a politician? Because public life in America isn't the most important thing. Indeed, whenever we talk about the public space, we mean empty things for tourists. It is private life that is public, like Facebook. That's supposedly private property, but in fact, it's the American press, all of it put together. Just like all the advertising money of the newspapers went to Google and, to a lesser extent, Facebook, so also the attention that newspapers still get depends on Facebook and Twitter. They wouldn't really exist otherwise, not that they will exist for much longer in this way either. It's a death spiral, if anything, when once you take something like, I am a TV celebrity because of a newspaper or because of a job in glamour or because of access to power in the administrative state, Whatever it is that you do that is popularized through the magic power of the TV screen, well, that's over when once everybody's trying to do it over five or six different massive social media tech corporations. When everybody's trying to be a celebrity, all celebrity dies. 
but the temptation is there and the fact that it can be democratized, generalized to this level that everybody's private life is turning public and public life is disappearing as a consequence, then you see why it is that the private man in a private thing like newspapers, like Charles Foster King, is such an interesting subject and is indeed so all-American. It is a democratic thing to want other people's attention, to want to be loved, but previously it was restricted to very few people. Cain is in this situation at the turn of the 20th century when he realizes there is a great new opportunity coming. He, unlike the aristocrats who brought him up, does not believe in respectability and responsibility. That is to say, he does not believe in, you're rich, you should be private and defend yourself. Don't shock people with opulent shows of your wealth, hide away in an estate where people can't even see your riches, be discreet, don't make the papers, you don't want to make yourself an object of desire and envy, much less ridicule or hatred. But because they think this way, aristocrats don't realize the massive power waiting to be unleashed. As you put it, who said it better than John Lennon? We're bigger than Jesus. These were kids. It was not their fault. It was the fault of democracy, really, and the industries and television that made this happen. All of a sudden, you had all these girls screeching. That's many things, but it cannot be called decent, moral, or sober. It is highly erotic. It is giving in to the most tyrannic passions because of electric fantasies. Television is going to sell you this fantasy and you can live your whole life in it. But it's not true. It's crazy and for an entire society it goes down with a crash and a bang and a boom, as we're seeing all around us now. Of course, in 1964 this was a new thing and only the craziest or the most reactionary could see clearly since they were not involved in the popular passions. This was gonna end up badly all the time. So also with Citizen Kane. At his time, you know, at the booming radio that transformed newspapers all over again, newspapers go back to aristocratic England, to parliament, to coffee houses, to mere sheets that gentlemen spread among themselves who barely print a few thousand issues. But you know, the political world was much smaller and so these people counted far beyond their small numbers. But the newspaper was reinvented in the age of the telegraph and the radio precisely because of instantaneity, of national reach, and because of the growing interest of private lives. And it is in people's private lives that Citizen Kane makes a difference. Politics would never listen to him. Business would never listen to him. He would just be one of many aristocrats, even in America. But let him become king of the people, and then he is on top, and everybody will listen to him. And, and you bring up a very interesting point also, is the modern book publishing industry, as we now know it, authors and playwrights, Shakespeare and Cervantes and so forth, going back many centuries. But when you started to have critical mass of, you know, Jane Austen, Mark Twain, Edith Wharton going in the last century, going into Agatha Christie and F. Scott Fitzgerald and so forth and going forward, and also the rise in newspapers and magazines, that dovetailed with the rise in what we would, I guess, euphemistically call leisure time. Certainly, there was not a lot of leisure time in the days of the Little House on the Prairie or the Triangle Shirtwaist, you know, sweatshop factories and the farms. But there was progressively more and more as engines and the harvesting machine and automation as was 100 years ago and assembly lines and such started to come into play. 
and you also started to have mass literacy in terms of compulsory public education and in terms of laws that made it illegal for, you know, Native Indians and African Americans in this country and for the lesser, you know, proletarian races to be taught to read and write. When those horrible classist racist laws finally, you know, went straight to hell where they deserved to go and you started to have mass literacy that, as you say, expanded the reach of the newspaper from highly educated, concentrated elite into mass media. That's also an interesting thing when you bring up Leland. I was just thinking of that when you were talking about it. At the time, Citizen Kane, he is in many ways an even more signal anticipation of the future than Kane was. Because during Kane's heyday, outside of the publishers, outside of the Hearsts and the Luces and the Grahams and the Pulitzers, the actual reporters at most newspapers and radio organizations were from the lower middle class, the working class. Certainly, you know, you have the powerful columnists in America when Citizen came out in 1941 would have been Walter Winchell and Ed Sullivan. And while they were both very intelligent, self-made men, neither one of them would have been considered an intellectual with an interest in great, you know, highfalutin ideas. They were very skillful wordsmiths witty in their way, even though you wouldn't think that to talk to them uh, or, or to see them later on on television or in the radio, but certainly they knew how to write. But they came from the World War One generation, first or second generation immigrant backgrounds. And men like Walter Cronkite and Edward R. Murrow, those guys, they were Midwesterners. They went to the state college. You know, Dan Rather, who came from the sort of borderline World War II Korea generation, went to a state college in Texas, I think. So working as a newspaper reporter was really déclassé if you were upper class or ruling class. It was something the smart, poor kids did. And that ended in the 1970s with Michael Kinsley and Charles Krauthammer and Marty Peretz's male Charlie's Angels, as it were, at the New Republic in the aftermath of Woodward and Bernstein. When you had the yuppie baby boomers being brought in because they thought of the glamour, you know, the two presidents Johnson, who perpetrated the Vietnam War, Nixon, who continued it and perpetrated Watergate, who brought them down? The press, crusading reporters brought them down. And you had this glamorization of the reporter as hero, and you had publishers. Peretz was certainly a signal of it. And you had some of the editors who had risen up at the L.A. and New York Times and such began getting inundated with people who had been to Harvard and Stanford and Yale and Princeton and USC and NYU film school and that type of thing, who ordinarily would have gone just straight on into law school or medical school or Wall Street and not wanted to be reporters who were pursuing being reporters because they could influence the public and especially kind of going back to the old ways, they could, even if they worked for a magazine that only had 100,000 readers, as long as it was the right 100,000 readers, as long as it was being read by the president and the senators and the Supreme Court and by Volcker and Greenspan at the Federal Reserve, then they were happy. 
And because they came from families where even if they themselves didn't get paid much money as reporters, Mumsy and Dadsy could support them, you know, could send them money until they started getting their book deals and their Nightline and PBS deals and made just as much money as they would have as a doctor or a lawyer. And Jed Leland was definitely the kind of father or grandfather of that, of the person who came from this sort of hidden hand influence of the upper class and went to Harvard and went to, you know, St. Albans or whatever beforehand, but wanted to overtly get his hands on the control room to directly influence and become a tastemaker both to his fellow rich people and fellow intellectuals and also to the general public to have that position of saying you should watch this movie or read this book and not read this that book you should see this play and not that play you should vote for this guy and not that guy and again that dovetails with the ruling class who want you have the subtle ruling class who did things through winks and nods and old boys clubs. And then you have these sort of black sheep like Trump today, like Kane back then, who wanted the whole cookie themselves. Kane was more honest about it, but I think that was why they had such a firm friendship, is that he was too classy to admit that he wanted the same things that Kane wanted, but they both deep down understood that they did. Yeah, you're right. Leland is a prototype for our times because he is such an Ivy League kind of guy. You reminded me of something that hadn't occurred to me before. Who's a magazine founder who believed big in journalism, but he was an Ivy League gentleman, kind of an American aristocrat for whom English was the second or third language, and also he had this sort of buy-in from the upper classes? William F. Buckley Jr., National Review the kind of original of that species. Of and course. if you want to see how you go from the sublime to the ridiculous, if not worse, think about all the Twitter famous celebrities from the Daily Beast or bad outlets like that who try to hide their Ivy League education and dox working class people because they're anti-Pelosi or they're anti-Democrat, anti-liberal, pro-Trump kinds of guys. That happens all the time on Twitter nowadays progressive demagogues from the upper classes, who are also a kind of parody of Leland. It's the way America has moved. The press is so much more important because democracy is so much more important. It's not the private lives of the rich that count now. It's the private lives of other people, maybe all people, or certainly most of the vast nation that is America. Things really, really have changed. Yes, and I think uh, when you were saying earlier that celebrity is sort of disappearing, in a way it is, but in a way, everyone is becoming a celebrity. It's just a question of degrees because of the YouTube, blog, Twitter, Facebook, social media culture. Now, as you know, also being a working writer for millennial and Generation X writers, it used to be that the media would make a writer into a star. And one of the great things about Buckley was that he platformed and billboarded what we would now call amplified new voices, John Leonard, Joan Didion. So, so many people got their breaks with him and early on. Very good point. But celebrity doesn't work that way. If everybody's trying to do it, nobody can be it anymore. 
Exactly. And some of this came from an article I did for the From Forum on uh, Citizen Kane's 70th anniversary about seven and a half years ago. And one of the other articles I did, which uh, was tied to a biography of Pauline Kale, who's going to be celebrating her 100th birthday next week. And I have an article coming out in American Conservative on that. It was called, Do We Have Too Many Public Intellectuals? in the sense that nowadays there really aren't any critics that have the power that she or Ebert and Roper or Vincent Canby or Siskel and Ebert had to make a movie or a television show a hit, or the way that Pat Morrison and Machiko Kakatani and before that, you know, Bosley Crowther and all that had to make a book a hit. Nowadays, books and movies and television shows become hits because of word of mouth on Facebook and Twitter. Instead of looking up at some platformed media intellectual for advice, we looked at our social network for, are you seeing this movie? Are you watching this show? Are you reading this book? Now the cart is before the horse. And so the concept of do-it-yourself celebrity has metastasized. But it's a funny thing. It's a law of supply and demand. When everyone can become something, it becomes cheapened. And when Citizen Kane came out, it was the absolute height of the star system of movie and stage stars as American royalty. Yeah, that's right. The democratization that has occurred since shows you just how much America can expand things, but also destroy all limits and all reputations. Citizen Kane is also very smart about showing that nothing lasts in America. Now, Kane is so much more interesting than a president would be, not just because we like private life much more than public life, because the things that touch us in our private lives are things on social media these days, not the pronouncements of politicians, or laws, or hearings in some commission somewhere in Congress. That's not what counts. It used to be newspapers, then TV, it's now stuff on your small little handheld screen. That's how it works when you democratize. Private beats public, in a sense, up until all the public people, like presidents or what have you, are on Instagram and Twitter. Private beats public. You know, a president is around for eight years or so, and then he's done. The after-presidencies or the afterlives of American presidents don't really count for anything in America. That's the way it is. At least a mogul like Kane lasts for decades, not just for four to eight years. There's more of a span. He is coeval with a generation in America, not just with a moment. But not even that lasts. The narrators that Wells chose for Citizen Kane are supposed to show you these kinds of transformations like we have been talking about, how things have been going in the three generations since Citizen Kane. You see the three generations of Citizen Kane. We started with the business manager Thatcher, who can tell you about Kane's life as he knew him in a business capacity primarily, and this is the generation that was already old at the turn of the century, and this is also the generation of the chairman of the board, as he is at the end, Bernstein, who worked for Kane and is the only one who really, really admired, not to say adored him. Then there's the next generation of Citizen Kane, where the narrator is Leland himself, who knew Kane personally, as opposed to the other guys who knew him only in his public image. And then, of course, there is his second wife, Susan, who, like Bernstein, is a woman of the people. She's an ordinary American, not like Leland or Thatcher, an aristocrat. 
and she knew him in an intimate capacity and in his downfall because she's a generation younger than he is. And in that way, from the 1870s to 1940, you get this vast sweep of American history through different generations and the influence of Kane on different generations, such as it was. When we start with the press reel, we just get this public view of the greatness of Kane. He was so important for so long. Wow, wow, wow. Up until he stopped mattering, he was no longer part of history because he was too weak to make history anymore. And that's all the press can really say of him, because they didn't know much. And from that we turn to the businessman Thatcher, who actually knew him personally, but you also see he didn't understand almost anything about Kane because his own business and aristocracy background made it impossible for him to realize that among the aristocrats a tyrant might rise, a new Caesar, let's say, who wants to become an ally of the people, like FDR did, for example. That's why we change narrators. There's only so much Thatcher can tell you. Another kind of businessman, Bernstein, is the guy who narrates the history of the newspaper. He's a nobody, not a somebody, but he was in on the action. He was there with Kane every step of the way, and he can explain to you why one of these moguls who's got an empire before he comes up with a media empire, why did he choose a newspaper? That's where the action is in America, that's where you get love, that's where you can really affect the people, really make a change. And so it's Bernstein who shows us what it is that Kane wanted. He wanted to marry progress, a hatred of the established business and political interests, to popularity, to the people's love, to an effect on everyday lives that will show him that he matters, that he is not just one among many. What defined Kane was that he was not satisfied to be just another aristocrat. The fact that he kept getting kicked out of every Ivy League college out of European schools for aristocrats as well shows you that he was never satisfied to be just one of the few. He wanted to be the one alone at the top. Yes, just to, to revisit the artistic accomplishments of Citizen Kane, one of the great things of using the multiple narrator approach was that before we really had the vocabulary for, you know, MTV type filmmaking or psychedelic type filmmaking, when you're going way back to the 30s and 40s, it was very hard to have the visual equivalent, even for a European filmmaker, much less for an American one, of the unreliable narrator story of Kafka or a Gogol or something. Kane was one of the closest to having an unreliable narrator because you saw the man's life through all of these, the feminine perspective, the pseudo-parental perspective, the business manager who hero-worshipped him, his best friend Leland and so forth, through all of these perspectives. You know, when someone gives testimony, they were a witness to a crime or they were in an automobile accident. You ask three people what happened and they give you three different stories. Well, it's not necessarily that they're lying. It's that they each saw and experienced this event through their what we would now call their own lens. And it not only gave each member of the audience, sort of like a good TV sitcom does, there's a character for each audience member to find their way in as sort of the audience surrogate. Kane gave various women, older people, younger people, etc., an audience surrogate that they could sort of get into the story with. 
And as far as the temporariness of things, I mean, I was just thinking of the most iconic scene, of course, in Citizen Kane is Rosebud and ultimately what happened, it gets burned up in the fire. And that was the really blatant metaphor for his greatest fear, that for all of his influence and for all of his mansions and his mistresses and meeting Adolf Hitler and meeting Roosevelt and all that, that it was all going to be burned up that, you know, God was dead, that there was no life beyond this one, and that all the monument to even such a great man as Charles Foster Kane, that it would all be reduced to ashes and rubble at some point. A lot of his life was whistling past the graveyard, trying to block out that consciousness of mortality, that one day it was all going to be over for him, and that after a certain point, people would have forgotten him as if he'd never lived in the first place. Yeah, that's very well put, and I think, Telly, that's a great place to close the first part of our conversation. It's America, and Kane is trying to be bigger than America. He insists always, I am first, last, and only an American, but that's never quite enough. He wants to be America herself, because nothing else lasts. The narrator in the press reel tells us, who else since the pyramids has built such a monument to his own ego? Cain does want to be a pharaoh because he is afraid of death and he hopes that America can make him immortal and somehow overcome the limits of his own body, of his own mortality, and, you know, the limits of his character. I think that's a very good place to leave off our first part of the conversation, and we will get back in the next episode with the second half of Cain, with what happens when the narrators get personal, people who actually knew him in his private life and can speak to his ambitions from a very different perspective. So thanks for joining me, and let's do this again next week. Absolutely. Looking forward to it already. All the best.